This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, February 11th, 2017, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The reader is Amber Miller. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. Chapter 2, starting with verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, by subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you suffer and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. For this is God's word. Praise be to God. So our sermon series is called The People of the Way, a title that uh, is given to the first followers of Jesus who believed and lived differently in the world, at least before they were called Christians. So last week, we began what is really one of two sermons called A Way of Submitting, And so we're tackling the second part today. And last week we explored what it meant to be a slave of God, a slave of Christ, which is not an usual term that we apply to ourselves and our faith. But if we did, perhaps how that perspective might change our sense of ownership and purpose and authority and even freedom uh, in our life. If Jesus is truly our Lord and Master, if He is the one who bought our salvation with his blood out of the slave market of sin, then my stuff is his to do what he wants with it, and my life is his to direct according to his plan for his glory. So I'm not free to live for myself, but I am free, free to know God, free to enjoy God, free to please God, free to serve God, the one who saved me eternally. Now, before Jesus saves somebody, we're not really free, though it might seem like we are free to do whatever we want. There are a couple things that we're not free to do, according to Scripture, apart from Christ. We're not free not to sin. In many ways, we can't stop sinning. We won't stop sinning. We don't want to stop sinning apart from Christ. There's no freedom there. There's slavery to sin there. We're also, according to Scripture, apart from Christ, not free to please God. 
The Bible teaches that without faith, it's impossible to please God. That whatever doesn't proceed from faith is sin. Now, of course, it doesn't mean that someone can't do what might look like obedience and what we might even call a good work. The question is not what behavior we observe, but what's the heart behind the behavior? What compels the obedience? Why is someone obeying? That you obey without doubt is important, but why you obey is even more so. So Peter calls Christians to a radical kind of obedience in these passages here. And it's a kind of obedience that's characterized by submission in relationships, different kinds of relationships. And it's a way of living that I believe is only possible if we have figured out that relationship with Christ that I talked about last week. The gospel of Jesus, we find, is not only just the entrance and the way into eternal life, it's actually the way to live in this life. All too often, Christians assume or, or maybe functionally believe that the gospel amounts to little more than just facts. Jesus died for my sin. Jesus rose from the dead. And there's certainly facts, historical facts, that are the foundational aspects of the gospel, but that's not what the gospel is only. It's not as if we believe the gospel and then go, okay, now I'm going to go about other Christian things. The gospel is the Christian thing. The gospel does guide us and govern us and direct us and help us to understand how we do relationships and what we do with all of our lives. Jesus and his death should be the motivation for our lives and our obedience. And Jesus and his earthly life has become and should be the model for our obedience. And Jesus and the power of his resurrection and his current rule right now is to be the means by which we're able to obey. It all goes back to Jesus as the motivation, Jesus as the model, Jesus as the means and the power to actually do what he has called us to do. So when we talk about submission, it's much larger than just one behavior that I'm just going to submit. It's about heart work. So when we begin in verse 13, Peter is instructing us um, about the Christian life. And the Christian life, it seems, as he has spent time in the beginning of the letter talking about be holy in your conduct, you are born again, you are a new person. And one of the first things he starts to describe or characterize the Christian life is a life that's marked by submission and humility. Those who live to serve God, which we talked about last week, to say if I am really a servant of God, a slave of Christ, owned and directed and protected and disciplined by God. If we live to serve God, then we freely submit to God's word, even when that means giving up our freedom in order to honor him. In verse 13, it begins, the first few verses, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Whether it be to the emperor as supreme, and we talked about last week who that he's talking about, which is Nero at this time, who is a real piece of work of a leader. Or to governors that are sent by him to punish those who do evil, to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. And that means this is the will of God, that you do that. 
that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So we are commanded in very clear terms to submit to all authorities in our lives, every human institution. And though Peter does identify the emperor and these governmental representatives, institutions can apply to every authority that is in our lives, whether it be government, whether it be teachers, whether it be employers, whether it be parents, whether it be spouses, whether it be pastors, it can be any authority that God has given to us in our lives. Now the truth is, every single one of us struggles with submission to authority. Maybe you're not like me, maybe that one angelic, holy there person that I am, but I don't like to be told, we don't like to be told what to do. Since I was a little kid, naturally, it's difficult for people to tell you what to do. Who are you to tell me what to do? We struggle with authority because we struggle with selfishness and pride. It's like built into us, like it's our nature or something. Essentially, we struggle with the same thing that our first parents, Adam and Eve, struggled with in the garden where we want to be the Lord of our own lives and not be told what to do or when to do it simply because we don't want to do it and someone's telling us to. Even when we agree, right? Even when we agree like, well, I probably should do that thing, I'm not gonna do it that way because I know a better way to do it so even if you tell me to do it, well, maybe you're right, but I'm going to do it like this. We struggle. It's just in every way under authority. A rebellion against authority in our lives is not merely, though, about rejecting a person or rebelling against some instruction. What Scripture is going to reveal that it's actually a rejection and a rebellion against the one who actually put that authority there namely God. If you have your Bibles, you should turn over to a passage you're not going to like, Romans 13. And in Paul's letter in Romans 13, he gets even more explicit. It's almost as if Peter and Paul are friends and talk about the same things, or maybe the same Holy Spirit inspired the same words. And in verse 1 of chapter 13, it says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. That sounds very familiar. For there is no authority except from God. So you think about that. Think about every authority that has come into your life. Every president and government ruler, now, in the past, and in the future. Every teacher you've had that you've liked and disliked. Parents, employers, pastors. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. No way. Seriously? That person was put there by God. Take it up with Scripture. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. Now, I'm not a Greek expert, but this seems pretty clear. And that's why it's so difficult. And those who resist will incur judgment. 
For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you'll receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he doesn't bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Peter earlier said that we submit to authorities in verse 13, right? For the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake. Not for our own good, for the Lord's sake. Paul says we submit to avoid God's wrath. And in 1 Timothy says we do such things so that the name of God and his teaching may not be reviled. You begin to see what the disposition and purpose of your life ought be. And it is other-oriented, namely living for someone that's not named Sam or enter your own name. That's tough. We do not submit because we love the authority or because we agree with the authority. It is because we love and we fear God. Our relationship, okay, you're not going to like this. And I know you're not going to like this because I didn't like this. This is why I didn't put it out on Twitter because I didn't like it. But it's so true. And dare I say, I've said this to my children at different times. And I could easily just have said it to myself as a child with my own parents. Did you know that, that our relationship to the authorities in our lives right now reveals everything about the relationship to God's authority in our lives. How we interact with those authorities right now, our disposition towards them, whoever they are, reveals everything about how we engage with, relate to God's authority in our lives. If he's the one who's put them there, that's what Paul said. So when my children don't fear me in a reverent and, and obedient way, I'm not the one who's told them need to obey your parents. God is. I'll step out and go, you better deal with that because this is actually about your relationship with God, not necessarily your relationship with me. Remember, this relationship dictates this relationship. And if you're struggling with the authorities in your lives, that could be evidence that you are struggling with God's authority in your life. I don't like what you're doing, God. And you might as well say, I don't like that you put that authority there, God. You should have that conversation rather than fighting with that authority for a while. And then it gets worse or better, however you view it. You go, well, Peter, Peter must just be talking about the good authorities in our lives, right? In verse 18, <laughs> he says, servants, it's a different word than doulos, slave, used here. It's talking about household servants, but a very similar function. But actually the word in talking about service to God is stronger than this type of servitude. But he says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, 
not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Now, most of our excuses to disobey good and gentle authorities would really sound pretty foolish to most people, right? Like, why wouldn't you? Like, they're asking you to do, they're very nice, they're very kind. Why, that's dumb. Why wouldn't you just do what you're told? Because it's great. They're wonderful. But we are all too ready to excuse disobedience and rebellion to cruel and warped leaders who infringe on our rights. Oh, I understand why you would do that. That makes sense. And the question is, like, what exactly are our rights before the Lord? What rights do we have before the Lord? Because everything, it seems, today in our culture is called a human right. Like, oh, that's, you know, that's a human right. Like, it's, it's like the great trump card, it seems today, to reject any authority, be it a politician, be it a parent, be it a pastor, be whoever, that dares take away what we view as my right. How dare you infringe on my rights? So can we get a list of these rights that we're infringing or someone's infringing upon? Because God doesn't talk a lot about the rights that we have. Did you know that according to Scripture, the only real justifiable excuse to reject God-ordained authority, even an unjust one, is when you're instructed to do something God himself condemns or to not do what he commands. That's where it goes wrong. That's where you have right, if you will, as Peter and John standing before the religious leader says, you tell us what the right thing is, obey God or obey you. Like there's a conflict. We're going to go with God. Peter charges here to submit to the just and the unjust authorities in our lives. And they are to do this, it says, with all respect. Meaning it's not just supposed to be pretense, begrudgingly with resentment and hatred under our breath. Oh, so, you know, fine. I'll do it. Whatever. He says, with all respect, with all reverence. Christians are supposed to be characterized by this radical kind of submission that doesn't make sense and does incur suffering. And you go, why? Why put up with this? Why? I'll give you a really simple answer. It pleases God. It pleases God. And someone who has been born again, someone who understands what Christ has done to buy them out of the slave market of sin and the cost that was, desires to please God. But even this, even this. I didn't say it would be easy. I didn't say it would be comfortable. But this governing force in your life that comes from the indwelling spirit is the spirit desires the things of the spirit and the spirit desires to please God. Even when he says, forgive your enemies. What? Love those who hate you. What? Give to those in need who don't seem to be helping themselves. Oh, come on. 
It pleases God. 1 Peter 2.20 says, What credit is it if when you sin you are and are beaten for it, you endure? In other words, great, you screwed up and you're, you're suffering because you deserve it. What's the credit there? Okay, I'll do what you say. Well, you're, you're getting spanked because you should be spanked. But if when you do good, when you do right, when you obey, when you have not rebelled, you suffer for it and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. You know, God is not pleased by all suffering. He's like, all right, suffering. That's not God. Peter's not talking about deserved suffering. He's not even talking about undeserved but indifferent suffering. What? So he's not talking about deserved suffering. He's like, you know what? I put authorities there to spank the bad things that you did. You did a bad thing. You need to be spanked. Okay? But then he's also like, what about when I do good and I suffer? He's not talking about that kind of suffering that's just indifferent. He talks about God being pleased when people trust him in the midst of unjust suffering. You notice in verse 19 it says, He is pleased with suffering for those who are mindful of God. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Intentional, unjust suffering. He is pleased when the person who, conscious of what God or what it preaches about God, says, I am submitting because it honors you to trust you and trust your ways versus fighting for mine. That pleases God. But there's more that Peter says. He says that this, right, submitting in these unjust situations, mindful of God as you're doing it, is a gracious thing, and it results in God's favor. So I'm submitting also because I believe doing this results in heavenly reward. We like immediate reward. We like earthly reward. We like instant comfort, instant wealth, instant whatever. But Peter here directs the minds of his audience to remember the future reward that God is guarding for them, the internal inheritance and the living hope that he talked about earlier. Paul talked about the same thing. There's a chapter in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where he begins by saying, we have this treasure in jars of clay. You probably remember that phrase. And he talks about the treasure is the gospel. And then he goes and he goes, man, we, we suffer, we're confused, we're beat up, all these things. And he talks about his suffering in serving God. And then in verse 16 of chapter 4, in the second letter to the Corinthians, he says, but we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, which it is. He's literally getting beat up by authorities that he is submitting to and not fighting against for doing right. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction, which is an interesting phrase for Paul to use considering he's being stoned and beaten. Oh, this is light and momentary. Like I've said before, and I'll say it again, when you're with Jesus 
for 70 million years, right? We're going to be with for eternity. So just take 70 million because 70 years seems like a long time for life. The older I get, it seems like not a very long time. But you're with Jesus for 70 million years. Do you really think you're going to look back at that 70 years ago? Remember that suffering? Remember that awesome thing I did at my job? Like, that awesome thing you did in your life is going to seem like winning the third grade checkers championship. And that horrible suffering you experience is going to seem, in light of 70 million years in the perfection of your Lord and Savior, like stubbing your toe. You're not going to think about it. You remember the last time you stubbed your toe? Like, yeah, I do. It was bad. Like, no, you don't. Right? It's going to feel like a sliver. So that's why Paul can say as he's experienced the suffering, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For things that are seen are transient, but things that are unseen are eternal. Like this is in the context of submit to unjust authorities. And if all you see is the injustice and all you see is the discomfort and all you see is the rights that you have been stripped away, if that's all you see, you are looking at the wrong things. As one theologian said, we must always be looking above versus around. Perhaps said a different way, we must always be looking beyond versus below in the moment. So Jesus gives us a great motivation to submit. Our motivation for obedience to a command like endure suffering is that it pleases God and he's preparing for us something amazing. But Peter is not arguing that just unjust suffering is a good thing, but he is saying that suffering unjustly like Jesus is a good thing in the eyes of God. Shockingly, he tells us something in verse 21. For to this you have been called. Did you know that when you became a Christian? That your calling had to do with this injustice, living like Jesus? For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Now I want you to think about that for a second because we have this idea, I'm following Jesus. I'm a disciple. Do you realize the life that you've chosen to follow? Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Wait, cross, what's talking? Death, suffering. Verse 22 says, he committed no sin. That's important, put down the shelf. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile, return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He continued enduring himself or entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Peter says, to this you were called. You were saved to imitate Jesus' life. We were called to submit and to endure, yes, even injustice like Jesus Jesus is the only one who ever lived a sinless life. He is the model for perfect obedience. He submitted himself perfectly to all authorities, religious and irreligious, and suffered unjustly. And what that should tell you is that even someone 
absolutely faithful to God will experience this kind of suffering. Someone who did it perfectly right had a difficult life because he lived for the Lord. See, one of the major reasons I think we struggle with this kind of submissive suffering or suffering altogether is because we don't expect to suffer. But when you open Peter and it says, guess what you're called to? Guess what example you were called to follow in the steps of? We have an example so as not to be surprised. And that example is of Jesus who is reviled. What is that? He was abused with words. And yet he didn't revile in return. Like, what do you mean? He was falsely accused. Ever been falsely accused? Ever been slandered or betrayed? Illegally charged? He was beaten? And yet, it says he never whispered a single threat in return. This is the Son of God. And I've told you before that I don't, it's difficult for me to get through the passion of Christ, that movie. Because when he's getting beaten in that movie, it's brutal. Some would argue less brutal than the actual reality. But it's brutal, and he's getting beaten and accused and attacked with hands that he made in tongues that he made, and he says nothing. He didn't say, what about my rights? If anyone has rights, Jesus did. And he's doing that for you and I so that he can secure perfect righteousness to be able to give to us. And we go, I don't know if I can submit to that. He didn't defend himself which is our tendency. He entrusted himself to the one who he knew would defend him. I don't know about you, I always want to defend myself. The first criticism, accusation. No, 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 let me tell you, no. That's not true. Injustice, oh, I'm, I'm not going to let you do that to me against disapproval. Let me prove to you why I'm right. Jesus didn't do any of those things. He entrusted himself. And entrusting means giving over, right? Committing, handing over, devoting. Like, what did he entrust? See, our refusal to submit to God's authorities and to endure even injustice at times, and it's not all the time, not every authority is going to be unjust. Peter says that. But our refusal to even take submissive roles of any kind. And we all have to do that in some function or way. That actually reveals, again, what we believe about God. Think about that. God has put these authorities in their lives, and they are for good, though we can't see any good. And because we reject that, we are declaring we don't think God is wise. We don't think he is loving. He would never do that. We don't think he's in control, because how could any good come from submitting to someone like Nero the emperor? I'm not sure you're ever going to be asked to submit to someone like Nero the emperor. Peter and Paul did. 
we have a tendency to say, I will not deny myself or give over my rights because this seems so out of control. Someone's got to be in control. Someone's got to fight for me. If no one will, I will. Someone is fighting for you. Someone is in control. His name is God. Now, this isn't, which is a separate sermon, some sort of call to endure all kinds of abuse that we can read about from authorities. We should seek justice that God has put in place to bring those abusers to justice. But the reality is, most of us struggle with submission in much, much less less exceptional circumstances and much more common experiences. We should follow Jesus who basically let go of control. Jesus denied his own authority. He denied his own wisdom, his own comfort, his own life. You know, when they came to arrest him and Peter's like, I will save you, Jesus, and he pulls out his sword. He's like, dude, chill out. Let me take his ear, put his ear back on. He's like, I could have legions of angels here. Do you think like I can't stop this? When he's before Pontius Pilate, Pontius Pilate, you know, I have the authority to let you go. He's like, you have no authority than what God has given you. What conviction. That's our example. Are we willing to believe that, that strongly? Jesus entrusted himself. He handed himself over to God in the sense that I am going to do what the Father commands and not my will, but his will be done. Jesus handed over really others to God. What did he pray on the cross? As he's dying, forgive them. For they know not what they do. He handed over the entire, he entrusted the entire situation to God and it resulted in his death, but in his eternal exaltation. Why could he do that? It says he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He believed what we ought believe, that there will be a vindication, that there would be a final and perfect reckoning by God who sees all, and therefore I don't need to take my own private justice or vengeance. God will take care of it. And if he doesn't take care of it now, he'll take care of it then. That's a radical way of living. Not devoid of emotion, not devoid of pain, but full of faith within all of that. Consider what Paul writes in Romans chapter 12 where he says some very radical things that we read past. If we read it slowly, beginning at verse 14 of chapter 12 of Romans, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Okay, I think I can do that. Repay no evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never, ever, 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 that's the Sam version, avenge yourselves 
but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Trusting in that. Believing in that. As we come to the end of this passage, Peter has spoken about the motivation and even the model for the kind of obedience that we're being called to, but I think the last thing he do is he describes the power that we have to be able to do this. And he writes in 1 Peter verse 24, chapter 2, He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Not you will be healed. You have been healed. For you were strained like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus is not only our example to follow, his submission secured our redemption. He changed us by his submission for those who trust and put their faith in his life, death, and resurrection. In those two verses, Peter references Isaiah 53 several different times in different ways. If you're not familiar with Isaiah 53, it's a passage and a prophecy that's written really 700 years before Jesus, and it gives really these, this picture of his redemption. I'll just read the first few verses to you, but you should read the whole chapter. The Jewish people struggle with this chapter as they look for a Messiah. They don't like this chapter because it very much points to Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. It says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, spinning up this person, namely the Messiah, he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He, Jesus, was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has done something about it. He has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus became our curse. He bore our griefs in his submission. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He's, his submission secured something for us. He was the sheep, right, who quietly went to the slaughter, went to the cross, and actually died in our place for our sins as our substitute. And by his submission, what does it say? He brought us peace. By his submission, he brought us forgiveness. By his submission, he brought God glory and us healing. Peter says that he died to sin physically, submitting himself to religious and irreligious leaders so that we might die to sin spiritually. He died for us, Peter says, so that we might live for him by faith. 
He didn't just die so we say, hey, let's call ourselves Christians and then go about our lives and do nothing. He died that we might live for him and not ourselves. Even when that means suffering unjustly and not receiving comfort or rewards in this life. Because he with, went without so that we could have life. And we can do that because we know that through the resurrection there's something better. There's something even better and beyond death. And I'll close with reminding us of this passage. If you've ever read the book of Hebrews, you'll come across a passage in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is the hall of faith, they call it. You know, hall of fame, hall of faith. Uh, very clever Christians. All right, hall of faith. And if you just read through all these names in there, you're going to read about faithful people who had crappy lives. And as he gets to the end of that passage in Hebrews chapter 11, he describes, if you will, what's going on about all these people. He names people by faith what happened. And then in the very end, he talks about the suffering that people have endured for their faith. And beginning in verse 36, I think I have 39 on the screen, but I'll start in 36 and we'll get there. He said, some suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. These are people who are suffering for their faith, suffering in obedience to Christ. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. Do you know that was in the Bible? They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, it says in verse 39, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. They didn't realize the fullness that would be the first coming of Jesus Christ and knowing what it was pointing to. Since God provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. And verse 1 of chapter 12 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside all every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you and I will not grow weary or faint-hearted and I love and hate verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Quit your complaining. Right? I got to submit to who? I got to do what? You have not gone so far as had to shed your blood for your faith. And your Lord did. And that should inspire and that should give you power. We can do this because, as Peter ended with, Jesus didn't just save us and go away and say, hey, good luck. All my example. See you later. 
says that he is our shepherd. He's the one who told us he'll never leave us or forsake us. We are sheep who went astray, but now through Christ we have returned to our Lord, and he lives to guard us and to guide us. He lives to guard us and to guide us. We are no longer going our own ways. Submission is our default attitude because Christ has shown us what humility and submission looks like. It's not because we're weak or inferior or fearful. We submit because we are followers of the one who submitted for us. Jesus is the motivation for our obedience, and he is the model for our obedience, and he is the means by which we can obey. So let us, for the joy of our salvation, deny ourselves, pick up our crosses, and follow him in his steps. Amen. Let's pray.